This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Welcome everybody to the continuing story of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 21 tonight. Um, I realized on the previous occasions I forgot to introduce myself. But I think, so I'm Neville, this is my church, and I help out with the Bible studies. How about that? <laughs> well, it's, it's the church we attend. Just yeah. clarify. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't own it. <laughs> Yeah, and we're, we're looking at the Acts of the Apostles, in particular, picking out things to do with the way that the Holy Spirit works in different situations, and uh, see what, um, that, whether that shines a light on some unexpected behaviour. Um, Acts uh, mentions the Holy Spirit more times than any other book, so that's why it's a good exercise for a focus on the Holy Spirit. Uh, um, mentions it 60 times, whereas the next... Um, one is mentioned it 30 times in the book of Romans. Anyway, and so chapter 21 uh, completes the account of Paul's third missionary journey and moves into the next challenging stage of his travels in Jerusalem and beyond. Um, okay, so let's, let's pray. Um, as is customary. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come before your word. Lord, we pray that you'd honour us by your presence and inspire us by your spirit amongst us and within us, that we may see wonderful things out of your word. Amen. Amen. Right, so as per usual, we're going to start off with the summary of last week's Bible study. So hopefully you've got a copy of that in front of you. Um, I'll just more or less just read it through. So this relates to the, this last week's study was late, relates to the second half of Acts chapter 20. And most of Acts 20 recounts events during the return stage of Paul's third missionary journey. A relatively large group of church representatives and co-workers were traveling with Paul, carrying with them a collection for the poor of the church at Jerusalem. Paul and Luke spent Passover at Philippi and then joined the main group at Troas, where they spent a week. They continued by ship southwards down the coast of Asia, modern-day Western Turkey, but sailed past Ephesus and stopped at the next port city, Miletus, presumably to avoid getting drawn into the busyness at Ephesus. When you think about it, it's somewhat unexpected that Paul could decide which ports the ship stopped at and for how long. The simplest explanation is that the ship was relatively small and their party of nine made up the majority of the passengers. Miletus is 30 miles south of Ephesus, i.e. two days walk, so it would have taken perhaps four days to get the message to the Ephesian elders and have them arrive at Miletus. Paul's address to the Ephesian elders is the only one in Acts that is given explicitly to Christians, so the themes are much more similar to his letters than his other recorded speeches. Also, it's the first one where we can be sure that Luke was present and used his skills to note down and summarize the essential content of the message, which he does with great skill. 
Paul is sometimes thought of as a domineering and powerful presence, which, I mean, presumably he could be at times, but this speech shows his tender and emotional side. Twice in this address he mentions his tears in verses 19 and 31. He said he served the Lord with all humility, but humility wasn't considered a virtue in Greco-Roman society. In fact, it was often regarded as a sign of weakness. However, Paul has learned his servant leadership from Jesus. He talks about his efforts in both public teaching and in a more private setting from house to house. We know he used the Hall of Tyrannus for his public teaching, that's from chapter 19, and the longer Western text of Acts adds the detail that he hired it from 11 in the morning to four in the afternoon. Taking that into account, it's probable that most of his house-to-house -house ministry was in the evening. So that left the morning up to 11 o'clock for him to earn money through his work as a tent maker. Sounds like four days to me. Paul reveals to the elders the difficult circumstances he knows he will encounter on the remainder of his journey to Jerusalem and beyond. He describes himself as being compelled or more literally bound in his spirit and specifically, the Holy Spirit has revealed that imprisonment and afflictions await him. Paul may have received this by direct revelation as well as through prophets. The next chapter, which is the one we're looking at tonight, gives two examples of this happening at Tyre and Caesarea. Despite these revelations, Paul is unbowed and undaunted because his focus is not on himself but on Jesus. His overriding aim is to remain faithful to him and to complete the course and the ministry he has received from Jesus. In this, Paul sets a truly inspiring example of Christian leadership. Then Paul reveals that he will not see them again. This was the news that had the greatest impact on his hearers. In effect, this was his farewell address to them. He declares that he is innocent of the blood of all of them. This phrase is an allusion to the Lord's warning to Ezekiel in chapter 33 to act as a watchman for the people of Israel. And Paul is able to say this because he has taught and declared to them the whole counsel of God. It's really unusual for an individual leader to have both the breadth of understanding and the ability to convey it. A more realistic approach for a church or fellowship these days is to use the gifts of a number of teachers and preachers, and even then, it's still a major challenge to undertake. In other words, to uh, go through the whole counsel of God in a certain space of time, like three years. In his exhortation to the elders to fulfill their ministry in caring for the flock, Paul again alludes to Ezekiel, this time chapter 34, which is God's indictment on the leaders, i.e. the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel 34 verse 4, though expressed in a negative sense, reveals that the role of a shepherd is to feed the sheep, strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, gather the strays, and seek the lost. That's a, the best, most comprehensive definition you'll get of a pastor in the whole of the scriptures. And Jesus uses the same, sorry, and he extends this analogy to, to warn that false teachers will arise from within them like fierce wolves not sparing the flock. And Jesus uses this same imagery of wolves in Matthew 7 verse 15. Paul was proved correct 
in that both Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and John the Apostle in 1 John 2 and chapter uh, chapters 2 and 4 in the years to come had to indeed deal with the effects of false teaching in the church at Ephesus. There were no doubt wealthy people in the church and Paul talks about them in his letter to 1 Timothy chapter 6 but as ever Paul leads by example in not coveting their wealth but instead working hard so he can help support those who are unable to work, which he calls the weak. This kind of generosity was countercultural. It's interesting to note that Luke records Jesus' teaching in Luke 6, 32 to 36, about going far beyond the Gentile norm of mere reciprocal generosity, which was little more than returning favours. Okay. Hopefully you remember that's sort of what we covered in brief. Okay, so for the, um, we're going to read um, Acts chapter 21, verse 1 to 36. I think we'll stop at verse 36. I hopefully we'll get to there or thereabouts, but the, from 30, verse 37 kind of connects with the next chapter, so it's better maybe addressed later. So historical context, we're talking about the spring of AD 57 at this time. And as is usual, our practice, we will read around a verse at a time, um, whatever version works for you, um, we will follow it in our own. And so verses one to 36 is what we're going to read. I'll start. And when we had parted from them, we set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbour of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. We went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These disciples warned Paul, the Holy Spirit prophesied through them, not to go on to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we took ship and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. 
When it was clear that he wouldn't be dissuaded, he gave up and said, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days he packed and went up to Jerusalem. Uh, there he went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one uh, son of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the others were pre present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. <coughs> when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and have your head shaved too and pay for theirs to be shaved. Oh, and then everyone will know that you approve of this custom for the Hebrew Christians and that you yourself obey the Jewish laws and are in line with our thinking in these matters. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the man to teach all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area, into the temple area and defiled his holy place, this, this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. He asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Some shouted one thing and some another. When he couldn't find out anything in all the uproar and confusion, he ordered Paul to be taken to the armory. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of those people followed after him, crying, away with him. Okay, thanks. We'll, we'll stop there. Yeah. Great. Um, and as usual, any kind of 
impressions or things you'd not noticed before in, in this passage or something unexpected? They were very easily, the crowd were very easily roused by Chinese whispers. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly comes across that way, yeah. Um, and so many of them, you know. Just, yeah. So, yeah. I'm just trying to find the verse now, but they said, oh, here it is, verse 27, the Jews from Asia. Okay, Asia, if you look at the map, have you got is a copy? Uh, it's, it's Western Turkey. So, can you see one of these? Yeah. Um, around. So, yeah, that was the, um, or sometimes referred to as Asia Minor. Um, but yes, it's the, uh, the Roman province there which include, and the, the main city was Ephesus. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, okay, so that's Yeah, that's... And actually, the, um, the Jews actually were from Ephesus because it mentions the word city uh, shortly afterwards. So, but, or there may have been people, you know, from around there in the vicinity of Ephesus. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those really confusing terms. It's bad enough dealing with terms that don't, you know, only have one meaning and are hard to pronounce. But when, you've, when it's so kind of ambiguous for the ordinary reader, it's, um, it does help to uh, have a map, I think. Any, any other points or, or little queries like that? It's interesting because I always read the same translation or version of the Bible and uh, the most of the year it was Gentile, but my books about Romans and he brought a Greek into the Gentile as opposed to a Gentile. And, uh, to me, I prefer that. I like to prefer it was the Romans who were the naughty ones. It wasn't just Gentile. <laughs> <laughs> it's just obvious to me that uh, this is a fairly older translation. Which, which, which version is it? The Living Bible, self-help edition. Oh, okay. My mom gave me a long, long time ago, okay. um, in 1971, actually. Okay, so therefore, it's one of the reasons why, it I mean, I'm fairly sure uh, in the Bibles that, that some Michelle and I are using, which is the ESV, is, is more of a word-for-word -word translation. So that they would, if the, the um, Greek said Gentile, then it would, that's what, how they would tend to translate it. So in yours, it, it's, a bit, it's a slightly technical term, but it's reasonably understandable when you get a bit into understanding the kind of context and the culture. Yeah, on my Bible.com app, it's also the English Standard Version, so there it is, but funny enough, this yeah. I've always studied in this one, yeah. but it's a bit more um, uh, emotionally written, I guess. Yeah, yes, and, uh, and they translate kind of Dynamically, thought for thought, rather yeah, than yeah, word yeah. for word. Yeah, and there's always a place for those sort of translations. Absolutely. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. Going back to uh, uh, verse one of chapter twenty-one, and we'll, we'll go through and pick out some thoughts on the way. And so it starts. From, I'll read the first few verses again. And when we had parted from them, in other words, from the um, elders, the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, that's the island of Kos, and you can see this on the map, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So at the end of chapter 20, we read about them, that their leaving of Miletus was tearful, and the verb in verse one, 
uh, implies a difficult parting. You know, and the NRV says, after we had torn ourselves away from them. That's how that renders it. And so they, they went past the island of Kos and then Rhodes. Um, you know, Rhodes was famous in ancient times for a great big statue in its harbour, a 100 foot um, bronze statue of the Helios, the sun god. But uh, that was, it was long gone by the time we're talking about this in the first century, in the middle of the first century AD. It, it, it was uh, felled by an earthquake in the third century BC. But yes, it still has this, this renown of the Colossus of Rhodes. And so uh, the, the boat does a series of short hops along the coast from Miletus, and they swap to this larger cargo ship at Patara, which was a major trading port. Can you see uh, uh, there on the map? And then on this map, they, and it's a fairly direct route. They go from straight from Patara down to Tyre. And uh, as they say, passed with Cyprus on the left. Well, it's about 400 miles, and I understand. What I found out was that it was just 644 kilometres, which would have taken between three and five days, just depending on the wind. Yeah. So, but and yeah, the wind can be quite unpredictable. But you would hope in this is coming through from spring to summer that it would be better, reasonably well behaved. You know, we're, we're fairly sure this would have been between um, Passover and Pentecost. So it's, it's the, when the weather should be behaving itself. Okay, and verse four, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So here we have entire, um, some disciples, so it appears that they had to go looking for them. You know, they didn't just kind of bump into them, or they didn't have, they hadn't sent on um, in advance news of their arrival, which would be kind of tricky to do. Um, and Tyre isn't mentioned um, in, in connection with Paul's travels at all, so it could well be, um, you know, one of his first visits here, at least, you know, coming from that direction. Um, Certainly, have gone through there and his yeah. travels back and forth. Yeah, yeah. You'd either travel through Damascus or Tyre, wouldn't you? One of those two ways. But maybe the coast road from Jerusalem to Antioch, where he and Tarsus was the way to go. Uh, we, we read in the earlier chapters of Acts, Acts chapter eleven, that following the first persecution after Stephen, the disciples were scattered and they went as far as Phoenicia. It says, and obviously onwards to um, Antioch as well, and, and Cyprus they mentioned. Um, so that may be accounted for the establishment of the, um, fellow, the believers in Tyre. So staying a week with them means they would, they would have a chance to meet the whole fellowship, you know, because that would cover the, you would assume, the main meeting at, on the first day of the week probably. Now the interesting thing here that people kind of um, take note of is where it says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, the question is, is the Spirit contradicting himself in this verse? You know, compared with how, the, what Paul felt he was constrained by the Spirit to do. Um, okay, that's, okay, anyone ha like to hazard a 
Perhaps it was more for their information what Paul was going to face. Paul would have faced it anyway, but he didn't tell anybody about that. But they were forewarned for mm. it was going to happen. Mm. There is a subtle difference here between this prophecy and the previous one. The previous one in uh, Asia laid out a litany of the things that were going to happen to Paul, but it did not include instructions or mm -hmm. an opinion. This one apparently is indicating the will of the Spirit or implying uh, an instruction, uh, which is different from the first one, which sets up this tension here between what, what Paul is determined to do and what is implied by the text. Mm. I mean, one, people, one thing people would say is maybe these prophets were adding in a layer of their sympathy mm. on top of what the Spirit was revealing to them. That, that's okay. You don't, yeah. um, which is perfectly understandable because you, know, you, you don't really want to wish hard times on them, on people, you know, in, in terms of speaking by the Spirit. Or, but there's maybe another way that you could think about it. Uh, uh, perhaps the Spirit was kind of giving Paul the freedom not to go ahead with this. In other words, he could bail out without kind of obvious disobedience. In other words, there, there, was, there was an offer that, he, you know, you, you can kind of go this way or this way. Um, and um, he obviously he was resolute and would want to go ahead with the um, his direction to you know face up to any challenges that were coming his way. I, I have understood for quite a while in myself that Paul had, was consciously replicating the, uh, the last journey of Jesus mm. to Jerusalem, yeah. and that he was yeah. anticipating that this is how he might finish his course. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we'll pick up on that later on, but that's a really interesting thought, that this parallel with um, Jesus, because the, the three synoptic gospels make this clear that there's a certain point in Galilee where Jesus sets his face to travel to Jerusalem. He has also said it's, it's not suitable for a prophet to die outside Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up on this thought a little bit further down in the passage. But it is, yeah, it's a really interesting one, an, an, a very interesting parallel. But sometimes the, the scriptures uh, are just not obvious. In other words, when you think the Lord has said something, uh, an example is uh, the message of Jonah, you know, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's this, print, there's this overriding principle that I've heard a preacher say that God's last word is never his last word if there is repentance. And so we know what happened in Nineveh, that they repented and that rather bold statement didn't come true, much to um, the disappointment of Jonah. Uh, and then there are other occasions where like, Moses is interceding for the people, of, uh, with the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. And however it happens, but he's having this conversation with the Lord and the Lord says, get out of my way so I can destroy this people and make of you a greater nation. And Moses says, not budging, no way. And he gives a, a really powerful reason to say that. And this is, our, this is given in, in Deuteronomy chapter nine, where he talks about it. 
Because when the Lord says to Moses, he says, the people that you brought out of Egypt have gone their way and have done all these things and, 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 and followed idols and, you know, um, so he's calling them Moses' people. And Moses says, no, 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 no. Your people, he says to God, that you brought out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And if you destroy them in the wilderness, the nations will say, he could lead them out, but he couldn't lead them in. So therefore, you are going to lead your people in like you promised. And so he stands in God's way and, and kind of holy disobedience kind of thing. So I'm just pointing this out as a way that sometimes these things are a little bit more complicated than they would appear at first. Um, and, but the, the bigger picture is, you know, God is trustworthy and he doesn't mislead. And whichever kind of option you choose, whether the spirit was giving him a... Um, a, f a free ticket out or whether it was just the prophets adding their sympathies on top of the um, prophecy probably doesn't really matter but uh, it, it is uh, I mean some people will obviously jump to the um, critical aspect and I don't go that way I think there's so much more to the scriptures and there's so many things to learn and be surprised about that you know I mean it, you, you get folk, maybe teenagers, who think they know everything will come up and tell you of all these contradictions in the scriptures. And as you get older, you think, actually, it's not quite as simple as that. And then you learn things that are clearly, that you appear to be contradictions, but you're not, and all the rest of it. So um, the scriptures are reliable. Absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, so moving on to the uh, uh, verse five. So uh, he says, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the breach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board ship and they returned home. This is a great sending off, and we get the impression that these folk at Tyre were not already known to them. So just in the space of a week, the travellers had formed real bonds of friendship with these believers in Tyre. And I particularly like the fact that it's the wives and therefore the whole families which went to the beach to see them off. Uh, so I kind of got this idea that Paul wasn't just a man's man. He was able to endear himself to men, women and children. You know. So it was a family send-off on the beach. And they're very touching you know, where they kneeled on the beach and, and prayed as well. When did that come into being when people kneeled to pray? How long had that been around? Well, Jews would normally kind of stand and raise their arms to pray, or if it's particularly an acute occasion, lie prostrate in the presence of the Lord. Mm. Kneeling, uh, I'm not sure. Ariane, do you have a... I don't know. It's a very interesting question. I, I read that the, the Jewish tradition was that they would stop that when... Just get away from the Christian Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, most of the practice of the early church would be naturally Jewish traditions, you know, so, um, yeah. culture and whatever they were comfortable with. You so, know, so. Yeah. Okay, so that's maybe something to um, find out and report back on when, when this practice of um, maybe Aaron will have to enlighten us about this one. When, how far back this practice goes of kneeling as an act of prayer. 
So verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them there for one day. Now, for those who haven't kind of done their research, Ptolemais is the name of the port of Akko. Or Akko. Um, and this is the only time it's mentioned in the New Testament, Ptolemais. Um, and it's somebody called Ptolemy II of Egypt. Um, he, um, he renamed it after himself in the third century BC. Um, and we find out from other sources, in particular Josephus, that there really was quite a significant Jewish community in Ptolemais, in that Josephus writes that about nine years later, which was the start of the Jewish rebellion, the inhabitants of the city massacred 2,000 Jews which is a lot of people. Now, sometimes you get slightly exaggerated figures in Josephus, but that's still a lot of people to, um, in, in that one city of uh, Ptolemais. Okay, um, and then on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. So he's still traveling by ship, it would seem. Certainly, it was a, it's a 30 mile trip from Acre to Caesarea and to do it in a day, would you'd do it by ship. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, um, Interesting bit of information. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, so let me just say about Caesarea, which was the provincial capital of Judea, and so it's the home of the Roman governors. So, for example, Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea but he pitched up in Jerusalem, actually routinely during Passover, mainly because of all of the busy feast times of the year, it's the one where a uprising was more likely because it was the feast of deliverance mm. from the oppressor. <laughs> so putting two and two together, it was worth being on the spot. Had to get their oppression together every year. <laughs> So, yeah, so it, w it was standard for the Roman governor to be um, in Jerusalem on uh, Passover, maybe other times of year as well. But he definitely lived in salubrious circumstances in the city of Caesarea. Uh, it was built in 23 BC by Herod the Great, and he built this impressive city and harbour on a sandy beach. Um, it's the first artificial harbour to be built in the ancient world. And it used um, the latest Roman technology. Specifically, it was concrete that could set underwater. The Romans knew how to make that. And so that, that's how he, they constructed these massive great big breakwaters out into the, into the ocean. And, you can, and they're still sort of there, that you can walk along them. Well, have lunch on. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the uh, Romans were pretty cunning in their uh, uh, kind of engineering capabilities. Um, now Luke describes Philip as an evangelist, which is curious because it's the only time in Acts that he uses the word. Um, now flipping back to Acts chapter eight, verse 40, which is the kind of the end of an eventful day for Philip. It says, uh, now this is the occasion where he, um, 
witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, and some remarkable things happened. Um, and in verse 40 it says, but Philip found himself at Azotus, which is um, uh, Ashdod, is that right? Yes. Um, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all towns until he came to Caesarea. So the assumption was that you know he was witnessing up the coast there and then ended up settling down in Caesarea and uh, raising his family there, perhaps. Or, uh, so anyway, so here, so that would have... Um, I'm trying to work out how many years previous that was. Um, which uh, 20 odd years previously, I think. Um, uh, yeah, yes. So we don't, some of those early chapters in, in Acts, I'm not quite sure how fast moving it is, but um, yes, it could easily be about 20 years previously. So. Um, uh, uh, yes, Azotus is Ashdod. Yeah, in which verse is that? Oh, um, so this is. Um, oh, it's not in the. Ashdod's not in the verse. I was just oh, okay. translating um, Azotus. Um, yes, I've always. I mean, I remember years ago wondering, where's Azotus on the map? Anyway, yeah. but now we know. Ashdod. And in this visit, Luke and also the others with him would have heard Philip's stories for the first time. Um, I'm sure he had quite a lot of stories. I mean, not just the ones that we've got written down in Acts chapter eight. And I'm sure they were really entertaining and no doubt Luke was taking notes because he had a particular desire to get eyewitness accounts. And it would be my guess, and I think it's a reasonable one, that he'd already got developed this idea of writing his gospel. Um, and so, you know, and, and the value, there's nothing to compare with the value of eyewitnesses when you're trying to sort things out which happened, uh, you know, 25, 30 years previously. Or, um, so, yeah, he would have uh, either, you know, had a, some private time with Philip or, you know, arranged to come back and talk to him again, you know, and, and leave his calling card. Well, I think it would have been unusual just to have four uh, unmarried daughters that prophesied. Well, obviously, under 20 years of age, you could go and Well, no, they, we, we have um, accounts that later on in his life, the, he moves to, uh, Philip and his family moved to Turkey um, in Hierapolis near Laodicea, and two of his daughters remained unmarried for the rest of their life. So, um, one passage has virgin, which would, one of those, anyway, um, which maybe would think they were younger, but just saying I'm married just could have, I think it's a, a relatively neutral term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah. But I think that obviously they're the kind of folk who, um, you know, made an impact in the fellowship. You know, that they, these four ladies not only proved that, you know, that the spirit was, you know, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, as in Joel, they were a living example of that, but also the four of them together in tune and maybe, you know, kind of encouraging one another as well, and with the encouragement of their father, 
you know, could have made a, a big impact in a fellowship to bring the word of the Lord. Okay, uh, moving on to verse 10. So, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Agabus the prophet is also mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, in the context of where he prophesied a severe famine. So, and that was um, part of the context of why Paul was bringing a, uh, an offering for famine relief to Jerusalem. And what this chap does is he combines his prophetic words with a dramatic illustration using Paul's belt. And uh, we know of several Old Testament prophets that went in for dramatic presentations of the Word of God. Anyone suggest some ideas, some examples of this from yeah, Jeremiah? Yeah. Jeremiah in particular. Ezekiel. Okay, yeah, no, give us the specific, yes, the actual example. I mean, yes, Ezekiel did a lot of it, yeah. But Jeremiah, what instance are you thinking of? Peter take his walls, something or other, girdle or waist or whatever he had, yeah. and take it to a um, in, in Pratt. Yeah. So yeah. And um, put the premise of a rock and go back next year to find it or whenever it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Um... Not, not Euphrates in Pratt. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's because you lived in Anatot, yeah. it's actually much more local than trekking up to the Euphrates. Uh, yeah, and examples with Ezekiel, these aren't hard to come up with, but uh, of dramatic things that he did to convey the word. Yes, cooking with not very nice fuel. Yeah, cooking with animal dung, yes. And then lying on his side for a certain period of time and on the other side for another period of time. Um, yeah, and digging a hole out of the house. And, and words, yeah. all, all sorts of things, yeah. He was a very kind of dramatic person in terms of trying to convey not just with words but with the hearing and the, and the example and making a model of the uh, Jerusalem being besieged he did that as well because some people are visual learners and they've got to see something yeah. to remember it yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and it's really interesting that the Lord employs this through Ezekiel just, just really trying to get the message across that stuff, bad stuff's going to happen you know, and that it is that it is warranted and explains why it is. And anyway, yeah. So it's like I, I know a preacher used to say that the Lord, he's he's not a talkative God, except when he's warning about judgment. Mm. Well, he doesn't want people to go through. Yeah. When that's when that's when the word of the Lord gets repeated, repeated, just to warn people against the dire situations of judgment coming. But other than that. You could describe him as not a very talkative God. Although we in the church, you know, have the blessing of the, the indwelling spirit and the guidance of the spirit. Um, and some people, you know, are able to um, formulate the actual words of God to them in those forms, but others just go on impressions and the scriptures or, you know, kind of the witness of the spirit by the, from what the scriptures talk about. Anyway, so 
Yeah, these um, dramatic illustrations are, have lots of um, precedents in the Old Testament. Uh, actually, the, the details of this are not quite what happened, but it, it definitely gives you the idea, because, in fact, Paul was taken into protective custody by the Romans. He wasn't kind of, and it's not the um, Jews who shackled him, but actually he ended up being shackled by the Romans, uh, and then, but, yeah. But the, thing, the whole thing was precipitated by the Jews, um, and as we'll read later. And verse 12, so when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be, be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now it's interesting that Paul's companions had you know, come across the, these prophetic warnings that he'd received in, in different places, presumably both in, in Macedonia and Asia and then um, and there in um, Tyre as well. Um, but so they're in Caesarea here. Um, but for some reason this really hit them and maybe because of this dramatic presentation it just really made an impact on them so that, that they they said you know, um, and, and Luke writes we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem so Luke joins in and, and the party says, says feeling that it's realizing that maybe he doesn't have to do that but this is um it, it comes across as a very modern idiom he says what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart <laughs> um, yeah, and he was, Paul, clearly he was affected by their pleas, but he remained resolute. Now, this is the point where uh, Ariel was, I'm sure that Paul and others were aware of the parallel situation of when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what would befall him there. Mm. And so, um, any other little kind of aspects you want to kind of, any parallel things between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and where he, he knew what his fate would be and Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Jesus' audience and disciples were uniformly counseling against him going as well. Mm -hmm. It was, it was yeah. one against everybody else. Yeah. And it's interesting that we happen to have what would appear to be quite a large group of people, which is nine most of the time traveling in the big boat. And then we'll read in a moment that some more hooked up, you know, some folk from Caesarea then carried on. So it wouldn't be difficult to make, to make the number up to 12. You know, yeah, a few from Caesarea would have gone from nine to 12. That's guesswork though, but it's, you know, you have this situation that Paul is surrounded by disciples. Um, you know, co-workers would probably be a kind of better term. Well, maybe, maybe they, they actually did regard themselves as disciples of Paul, and, and particularly people like Timothy. So Timothy was in the number there. You know, he had spent so much time with him and, and basically traveling with him, which is, you know, what an itinerant uh, sage would do in Galilee, so, which is what Jesus did with his disciples. And the effect of that is you see your master, your rabbi, in all sorts of lights, and you, you realize and you understand how he reacts to certain situations, how he deals with the surprises, 
so for example, the disciples would have been able to witness when, when people came up to, to Jesus and said, Herod's just killed your cousin, John. And then how Jesus responds to that. And he honors John in his, you know, we went out to the wilderness to see a prophet, you know, more than a prophet. He, you know, he was, he was the greatest of the prophets. So that, that's the thing about being in such a close relationship with uh, your teacher. You, you get to see insights and reactions and things are revealed that you would, you'd never get in a classroom setting. So it's, um, but, and it, it is such a more profound way of discipling people. In other words, kind of leaving them with them in all circumstances. So, and Jesus always took events and circumstances and questions as teaching aids. And, I think, and then he, he replied to them and then added a couple of parables as well to, to expand it. And you'll find that pattern repeated in his style of um, teaching. So yeah, it's a, it lends itself very much to um, covering all sorts of topics just because things happen on the way. Um, yeah, so it's, this is an interesting parallel between Paul and Jesus and, um, and the sense of uh, foreboding in heading towards Jerusalem. Um, but Paul is fixed in his mind of what he's going to do. And so verse 15, after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So the, the term in verse 15 using, used for getting ready suggests that they had the use of horses, kind of, sort of saddling up and packing. Uh, and it's a um, 64 mile journey from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. So, and, and the party had swelled into double figures. So um, maybe some, um, some horses would come in quite handy, particularly if you wanted to uh, put, pack the, um, the money. And remember, they're still carrying bags of heavy money. Put those on the horses so that if you had bandits on the way, you could just, just kick the horse and, say, and then run out of the way. So yeah, it's probably um, a good idea from security. And maybe they, weren't, maybe they were just going walking pace, some, some riding and some walking. But anyway. Um, uh, so, uh, having friends of friends like Nason with a large house and a large heart is a great benefit for Paul. So these were people that the disciples, Nason was a person that was known by the disciples in Caesarea, and so that's why they accompanied him and they you know, showed him the way to his house. And so this guy is um, a Jew from Cyprus and appears to be, you know, with a big house, but he also had a big heart. In other words, enabled to, willing to accept 12 or more people that you'd never met before, including a whole bunch of Gentiles. So this guy was you know, on board with hospitality and with understanding of the Lord's heart for the Gentiles as well, in order to receive a, receive a party like that. So, um, you know, well done him, I would say. And he's described as an early disciple. Um, and it probably means either that he had been with Jesus 
and was counted amongst the 120 on the day of Pentecost, or at least came to, came to faith during Pentecost or soon after. I mean, maybe the phrase an early disciple was kind of a badge of honor that you, know, you go back to, to the man himself. Um, so either way, uh, Luke would have been pleased to meet him for the same reason I mentioned before, in order to pick up some more eyewitness accounts for the orderly account he was writing for Theophilus. Verse 17, when we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, one little comment, first of all, on what is not mentioned here. There is no mention here of this assembly of any of the 12 of the apostles. We've got James who is clearly the leader of the Jerusalem church and the elders um, but no hint of the apostles and I think a fair assumption would be that they were spread far and wide bearing witness to the risen Jesus and the kingdom of God you know they were the people who had the authority and the commission from Jesus to go out and so I think it's a perfectly reasonable division of duties that other people would do the kind of administration and guidance and leadership in Jerusalem and the apostles would head out head out and about and and history bears witness to that as well that they were scattered no it's not quite not quite so obvious exactly when that happened uh, now I'm sure the gifts of money were well received that, that Paul and the whole party was bringing with them but more importantly they were well received you know the it says the brothers received us gladly um, and then there's no not a sense of friction amongst the leadership here you know it's James and uh, the elders there receiving the, this bunch of primarily uh, Gentile believers and a meeting is arranged for the next day when all the leaders and elders of the Jerusalem church present you know basically this is this is news, this is a big deal. So what the thing to do is the very next day you have a meeting and a, I would have thought it would have been an all day meeting, knowing Paul, <laughs> and the number of stories he had to tell and bringing all of the elders together because this, this is insane, this is really important news. You've got to hear this guys. You've got to hear what this is man is, is witnessing to and testifying about in terms of the kingdom of God. So there they are, they all turn up the next day. And Paul greets them and he, he relates one by one the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Uh, you know, and when, when Paul gives a debriefing of what the Lord's been doing through him, no one wants to miss it. And, and no doubt Luke is doing his best to take notes. Um, so this is one of these things where I kind of wish there was tape recorders uh, so this and the Jesus teaching in Luke 24 where he explains in all the scriptures how he first had to suffer and then enter into his glory that would have been a good Bible study to have recorded and I think this this kind of uh, this meeting would be another one so may I make a note if, if, see if there was see if the angels were on the case recording it that we can pick up with <laughs> yeah we will and when they heard it, they glorified God. 
And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So verse 20, glorifying God is the right response to his amazing work. But there was also news of God's work among the Jews of Jerusalem. So they're kind of um, pitching in another part of the big story. And this would have been great news to Paul, who we know longed for the Jews to turn to their Messiah. He would, and, and I'm sure all his party would have embraced this news that there were thousands that had become established in the faith. A small now, correction here, just some of the translations. The, the text says tens of thousands, it doesn't say thousands. Mm. We're talking huge numbers of people and a significant percentage of the population of Jerusalem. Yeah. All zealous for the law. The other manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Yes, presumably the Western text has that in. The, the Bible Society text says tens of thousands, myriades. Yeah. Some of the translators say myriads. Myriads to us in English is a lot. This is a number in Greek. It's, yeah. tens, it's tens of thousands. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Now, there's a, a point that we need to focus on here. Uh, some commentators assume that these Jews who are, quote, zealous for the law are essentially the same as the circumcision party that we hear of earlier on in the book of Acts. So let me just uh, turn to that reference. So this is Acts chapter 11, verse 2. Actually, I'll just read from Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying... He went into uncircumcised men and ate with them, and so on and so on. So, uh, and then let's also turn to Galatians chapter 2. As another uh, relevant reference to the circumcision party. So um, I'll read a couple of verses from verse 11. Okay, verse 11 says, When Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So these are two uh, examples, and there are others that relate to these, these people who are agitators for the strict interpretation. Maybe they're kind of siding with the school of Shammai rather than Hillel. Uh, but also they're the people who are prepared to get up and do something about it as well. Anything to, do you want to add anything to well, that? Well, it, it's pretty clear from this text that the huge majority of the disciples, professing disciples in Jerusalem, were zealous for the law and that they were, in fact, that entire group is the party behind, as, as you mentioned, the call the party of the circumcision. We can, Reflection of the language is coming up of circumcision, uncircumcision. I mean, these people had read probably something about Galatians. There seems to be an echo of Galatians coming through yeah. in, the, in the discussions about to happen. 
So do you think, although it doesn't tell us in our text, but the implication was that as well as being zealous for the law, they're zealous for the law to be applied to Gentiles. I, I, I wouldn't say that, but because I don't think I don't. I, that I, doesn't. I, well, I don't think they would say that, but they just couldn't. They couldn't break through from this huge constraint that was on them. Mm. I mean, and, and it's particular to the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and underneath the shadow of this the temple, yeah. huge edifice down there that just represented in shining, glittering. Uh, white marble. Splendor, splendor, the glory of the law. They couldn't, they couldn't overcome it in the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm careful to note that the text doesn't tell us that they were opposing that uh, Gentiles, or, or whether, or how much they had taken on board the teaching of the Council of Jerusalem, which is repeated in, in the next verse or two. Um, in other words, the four instructions given by agreement of all of how Gentiles should conduct themselves, particularly in terms of table fellowship with Jews. I see it as a, as a compliment in a way. It's a positive thing, I mean, that tens of thousands of Jews, thousands of Jews who are zealous for the law, these weren't the Hellenized Jews or the more ones who perhaps assimilated more. These are people who really love the and it's uh, been well established by recent theologians that Jesus really was a Torah observant Jew yeah. And I think one of the best ways of illustrating this, although obviously he was challenged a lot, particularly in terms of what he did on the Sabbath. Um, and there's, there's one occasion in Luke's Gospel where he heals in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this is in Capernaum. And then he goes to um, Peter's mother-in-law's house. She has a high fever and he heals her. And then at the end of the day, they all queue up outside his house. Now, what it says that in the synagogue and with uh, Peter's mother-in-law, he, he spoke a word or he rebuked the sickness. Um, whereas all the people in Capernaum pitched up after sundown. Yeah. No, they waited until the Sabbath had finished. And then it says Jesus laid hands on them and healed them. Now, the debate that was active within the Pharisees was, and, and I think the conclusion was that if you heal by just a word, that's not work. But it's the laying in hands or conducting procedures or manipulation or whatever it is, that, or giving them something to drink or whatever it is, um, you know, mixing a medicine. That's, but just speaking a word, which has the power to heal and deliver, that was not breaking the Sabbath. Yeah. And, it's, and, and in that passage, I think it's in Luke chapter 6, you can see it, uh, how, how it works out. Well, so, um, the time of great debate, it was still forming quite a lot of Holy at that time. Yes, and, and you had different schools as well. You've had, um, as they said, you know, well, two schools and three opinions, you know. Yes. <laughs> well, two Jews and three opinions, you know. That's how, how the saying goes. So yes, it was no shortage of debate on these topics.
but um, yeah. It's a, so Jesus was, in this sense, actually, by the people who know what they're talking about, people like David Flusser, um, said that Jesus was a Torah observant Jew. So therefore, having tens of thousands of believers who become more infused by the Torah is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, having to take on board this um, aspect of what happened in um, Acts chapter 15 is also a necessary thing to, to understand the bigger picture that, of God's plan for the whole world. Um, actually, let's... let's um, I mean, the problem is that the... Um, well, those who oppose... Um, Paul have been basically misinformed about his teaching. Uh, and so, but Paul's emphasis might be different. So let's actually look at two, a couple of verses that talk about Paul's view in particular of circumcision. So let's start with the Galatians passage. So this is Galatians chapter five, verse six. Um, well, it's a, it's a phrase you'll be interesting with. Uh, familiar with where he says verse 6 for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love so you know the, Paul's emphasis like this is, is different and more nuanced but he certainly did not teach that Jews should no longer practice circumcision so look, to, to check that let's actually turn back to Romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3, and, and we'll read um, just the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. So, I mean, this is, this is obviously working up uh, the whole load about circumcision in the previous chapter, but this kind of, the conclusion that Paul comes to is saying, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, it's also worth pointing out that this is the letter to the Romans, and this was probably written just a few months before the episodes we're reading about. So this is, you know, this is pretty current and correct with what Paul would want to write in terms of a considered opinion on the topic of circumcision. But this, um, but I, I just want to expand on this verse a little bit. Um, and Paul says, you know, much, what, what value is a circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he, he then goes on in another place, if you turn over to Romans 9, the further things that they were entrusted with. So not just the oracles of God. So turn over to Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. So this is where Paul is saying how much he longs that they would turn to Christ and... Um, you know, receive him as their Messiah, and how much he and that, that he could wish himself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of these his kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse four, he says, "They are Israelites, and to them, now, you count these things, okay, because they're important. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises." 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's, a, that's a, an impressive list of things that, um, you know, the, what the Jews bring to the life of faith um, in many ways. So that's why he says, you know, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, but that, he doesn't end with that. Okay, so that, I just wanted to fill in a little bit about what Paul's emphasis was on circumcision to illustrate that actually his views are being misrepresented in this uh, situation in Jerusalem that we're reading about. So, um, verse 22, James asks, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, okay, this is kind of reading between the lines, but I kind of suspect that Paul wasn't entirely convinced that this plan was a great idea. But he clearly submits himself to this. And actually, you see, Paul, it's not just these people that where the, the threat of come, come, come from. It can come from the, 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 the Jews outside of the, the fellowship. Um, anyway, so, so Paul but subjects himself to this idea. Now, the vow that these four men were undertaking was very likely a Nazarite vow, which normally lasted 30 days. And the gifts specified to be, be presented at the end of their vow were quite costly. And so the reason why it says uh, in verse 24, take these men, purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. What they did at the end of the 30 days was they, they brought and offered these sacrifices and then shaved their head and then the hair was burnt as part of the offering. So, so that, that final stage was actually the very costly part in terms of the expense of the um, sacrifices. And actually before I studied this, I had no idea actually how expensive uh, undertaking a Nazarite vow is. So we're gonna have a look. So we're gonna turn back to Numbers chapter six. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's, it's the bit that details the Nazarite vow. I'll, I'll read from uh, Numbers 6, from verse 13 to 17. So, and then when I'm reading this, I want you to count up the number of different offerings are, that are required at the end of this Nazarite vow. So verse 13, and this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, 
and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Oh then, and verse 18, yes. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So yeah, very detailed explanation. But did you get the idea there? There's an awful lot of uh, significantly expensive um, sacrifices involved in this. So you know for the Passover that the instruction was to take a lamb or a goat from the flock. But if you couldn't afford the, these, the, the um, two doves or pigeons would be okay, you know, if you couldn't afford. So the, in that context, there was uh, room for the, how the poor people would cope with that kind of situation. But here, this is, this is a voluntary thing that you undertake and there's no kind of uh, low cost option for this. It's, it's, this is a serious undertaking. Um, and so hence you can see why um, it's, it was considered a, um, a, an honourable thing to stand the costs of people who are undertaking a Nazarite vow. Yeah, and, yeah, and be significant help. So as well as, um, and James tells Paul, as well as you know, to um, pay this money, for these four people. He tells Paul also to take a vow himself. Now this was, it would appear, a seven day vow. In other words, we, we read in verse 27, when the you know, seven days were completed. And it probably related to the ritual cleansing after traveling in a Gentile territory. There, were, there was a, uh, a cleansing, uh, vow for that and it lasted seven days with washings on the third day and the seventh day. So this would obviously be what, would be the reasonable assumption, this is what Paul was undertaking. And he coincided his seventh day to co coincide with their thirtieth day. Um, so that's a bit of kind of technical background, which is it does help you to um, understand why this was uh, chosen by James as a significant and uh, obvious thing to do, to make a point. So, verse 25, and, Paul, and, and James goes on, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. So here, as we see, James reaffirms the decision made at the Jerusalem Council, which was about uh, nine years previously. This is the uh, uh, recounted in Acts chapter 15, verses 20 and 29, you know, the, the, where they give this list of three things, both from the meeting and then from the letter that they uh, write for distribution amongst the Gentile churches. And Paul goes along with the plan, fair enough. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, Jews from Asia, in other words, uh, pretty sure this is from Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere 
against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So, and the assumption is that they also recognized Trophimus as being a Gentile. Or maybe they could tell by what he was wearing, but you know. But Trophimus was from Ephesus. So he was spotted by these Jews from Ephesus, it would seem, and, and they knew that you know, Trophimus was a Gentile. So they put two and two together and made 23, or whatever number you want to come up with. But it's definitely they um, came to the, a rather hasty and incorrect conclusion that Paul had brought um, Gentiles into the um, uh, temple area. Now, what I was going to do was, um, uh, I've got a, a diagram here of the temple area, so we're going to talk about this for a few minutes, so pass this around. Actually, there's probably enough copies to go around here. Sorry? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, just have a look at these. So this is a, quite a nice diagram of the temple area, which is always good to get a picture of what's happening. Um, so what I want to point out to you is, um, so you, you can see various features. There's the big marketplace called the Royal Stoa um, on this end. This is a southern end. And then you've got a, a square wall around here, which is the original size, uh, the kind of size of the temple area before Herod extended it. And then beyond that, you've got a little wall. Can you see this little wall going around here? You see, on the southern side, it's most clearly. So this is called the Soreg, or the Wall of Partition. And this is the one that had the blood-curdling threat on it. So this is the wall that Gentiles should not cross. Um, and both Josephus tells us, and we actually have, um, archaeologists have found these stones which have got the written warning inscription on it. And they reckon it, it was, and there's a complete one which was found in the 19th century, which has now ended up in the museum in Istanbul, just because it was the Ottoman Empire at the time. Somehow these uh, kind of colonial powers liked to nick things. Britons would, Britain would never do that. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so anyway, so that's where this, this best example of this uh, warning is, is held. And there's another, another half a block, which is, uh, and which I think is in the Rockefeller Museum, but certainly the Israel Museum has got a, a facsimile of this, this limestone block. And they, they occurred in regular spaces all the way around, and they were written in Greek and Latin. Um, with, the, as I said, the letters painted in red. And a translation of the wording goes like, like this. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. <laughs> so that was what was written on this inscription. In Greek and what? In Greek and Latin. In other words, the, the official language of the Roman Empire, as well as the 
language of commerce. So basically, so that I mean, there wasn't really any need to write it in Hebrew because it wasn't addressed to them. It wasn't addressed to the Jews. It was addressed to the non-Jews. Um, and what what is also interesting is that if you'll be familiar with the uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 2 Paul makes reference to this and almost everybody agrees that this verse which is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 is a reference to this wall which divided Jews from Gentiles so I'll read from Ephesians 2 verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressing ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place, place of two, so making peace. So anyway, he uses this illustration of the dividing wall of partition and it is actually this wall that exists in the temple compound. Uh, so verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So just to clarify that verse there about dragging Paul out of the temple. Um, Paul wasn't actually in the temple. Um, he was just in the nearest part where he could probably be. Um, in other words, he was probably just inside the Nicanor gate. So I'm now going to pass around a, uh, another picture. This is also, the way, you have to share this one because I haven't got very many copies of this. So um, this is a, a an, an enlarged picture of the temple itself. And it's got marked on it the gate that I'm just referring to. So the, that big gate in the middle of that central compound is called the Nicanor Gate. And those people who had come and to offer a sacrifice, could, the men could stand just inside that gate and see the priests and Levites doing their duty. And so it was probably there or thereabouts where Paul was standing and they dragged him out of the temple and then the, they shut the gate. So they would have shut the gates with the Nicanor gate and then the one on further to the east, um, they, they would also shut that just as a, because basically a riot was about to happen. And so you can understand the um, temple guards, presumably it was, um, who were, whose responsibility it was to manage think, when things start getting a bit problematic. Um, and they, you know, basically the, the gates were shut to protect the temple. Now, um, the, uh, the approach of kind of beating the person and then asking questions later seems to be pretty severe. You know, because uh, he talks about, um, and as they were seeking to kill him, that's in verse 31, so, you know, there doesn't appear to be any evidence of actually find out what the truth of this is. So, um, yeah. 
And so the Roman cohort was very close. So looking back on the, uh, the other diagram of the whole of the Temple Mount, can you see this building at the top? This is the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. This is called the Antonia Fortress, and this is where the Roman cohort was barracked. So this is where the soldiers would be. And you notice that the, there's one of those towers, which was particularly bigger and taller than the other ones, and it gave a really good view over the whole of the Temple Mount. So there would have been, there would have been soldiers on duty at the top of this tower watching all the time what was going on. That was their responsibility. And they were next to the Temple Mount because of the potential for flashpoints in this area. And, you know. Still the same. Yeah. Still the same potential for flashpoints. Yeah. And so, and uh, there were, from, from this barracks, there were two stairways leading down directly into the Temple Mount. So, I mean, it's one of the things that when I was last on the Temple Mount, which is a, a while ago, uh, I like to go to the top end and actually see this area um, because this is where, instead of it being built up, uh, Herod had to chisel away the solid rock in, in this top corner, in this northwest corner. And then, because the rock there is higher than the Temple Mount, and then this Antonio Fortress was built on top of that, so in a very commanding position overlooking the Temple Mount. Uh, and then verse 33, the, the, the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. So at least someone's beginning to ask some questions. But it wasn't the Jews, it was the, um, uh, the Roman tribune, the person who's responsible for this, for the, the Roman soldiers there. Now notice Paul is bound with two chains, presumably to the two soldiers beside him. Uh, and this resonates with the prophecy of Agabus, you know, that Paul will be bound. Although this binding was by the Romans. However, there is absolutely no doubt that the riot was caused by the Jews. Or by uh, rumours and misinformation and just touching a nerve. And, and actually, the other thing I think is almost guaranteed is, you know, uh, the couple of weeks ago I was talking about Paul and the thorn in his flesh and he talks about the Lord assigned a demon to keep him company a messenger of Satan and I think this messenger of Satan has a hand in how these kind of things can get out of control so fast they specialize in chaos and rage and all that kind of stuff so uh, yeah and Paul would have been we would have sussed it out I think knew what was going on you know um, well, the accusations that they bring none of it is technically accurate and, and of course the Greeks in the temple is a total lie but in the bigger picture of things and demonically speaking the that is motivating these people, it's true. Uh, neither Jesus nor the disciples explicitly uh, you know, came out and, and denied the temple and everything, but in the total New Testament picture, it's quite obvious. The blood of both and bulls, both goats and bulls, never took away sin. Mm. If you look very carefully, God never told anyone to build the temple. It was David's idea. Mm. He, he said, 
God and said, no, 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 you don't, uh, you know, I, I have a son who's on the way, he's going to take care of it all. And David said, oh, Solomon's the guy. Mm. Yeah. And if you follow the thread through the whole thing, and as a matter of fact, it, the gospel does take earthly Jerusalem down off its pedestal. It does deny the efficacy of the sacrificial system in the temple. And it was demoted the Jewish people from a unique and specialized group to a to a, a potential leadership inside a redeemed humanity. Uh, it's a very demonic thing here. In, in essence, the devil is is speaking his own version of the truth. Yeah. One thing I noticed interestingly from Acts chapter seven, where was, where Stephen gives his his impressive speech to the Sanhedrin, and the themes that Stephen brings out. I kind of put, highlight a bit of what you're saying there, Arie, that he, he says that he put, the point he makes is that God doesn't need a temple to, in order to speak to his people. He spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He spoke to Moses in, in Egypt, in the wilderness. You know, he, he, and then he also brings out this factor that, and the leaders of Israel consistently get it wrong. And that's part of what um, Stephen is, the point he's making. So, you know, clearly, from those early days, there was this teaching and this understanding amongst the early community. And then he finishes off with a quote from, you know, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the place that you are building? And, you know, and what is the place of my rest? Have not my hands made all these things? And so they came into being. But this is the one that I pay attention to. He that is contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66. Yeah, so th this, is, this is a really important theme. That is, and, and I think that, that Luke, in his own understated way, he, is, he makes a huge statement. And when Paul is dragged out, they close the gate behind him. I mean, <laughs> this is such a huge symbolic thing. You look at the size of this gate, the location of the gate. And the yeah. fact that Luke... Luke says, yeah. Yes. I'm finished with this. Paul, let's move on. Yeah. And just to put it into context, in 13 years' time from when we're reading, the, the temple is going to be destroyed by Titus in AD 70. Uh, so let's just finish off the last two minutes, I think, because uh, we're very near the, uh, the end. So verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he, the tribune, could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Okay, so this, this is the uh, kind of, so he's being, so Paul is being dragged up, up here into this top corner and being taken up these steps that I mentioned that go directly into the barracks. And note, I like this eyewitness detail that comes through here, that Paul's feet didn't touch the steps as he was being carried away. Because you know, these, there's two burly guys next to him basically <laughs> arrive at the steps. You know, no hanging about Paul here, Wigan. Um, and what I also notice here, and this is kind of the final point I want to make, is that throughout the book of Acts, Paul makes it clear who is primarily responsible whenever there's a civic disturbance or whenever there's violent opposition to Paul. Now, this is only something I, I've picked up on recently, that whenever this happens, Luke is keen to identify who is involved, who is responsible. And 
most often it's the Jews out of envy or misunderstanding or just demonic influence or whatever it is but it but it's not always to be fair it's not always the Jews and in fact the most serious opposition in the end seems to come from the craftsmen whose livelihoods were threatened by the spread of the gospel now there are two occasions when this happened one was Demetrius the silversmith in Acts 19 and the other one is Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4. Now, we, we've touched on as an Acts 19 before, so we won't go there, but I just want to read as this last passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, just to show something that is quite revealing in this context. 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15. So this is Paul's last letter that he's writing to Timothy knowing that he's facing execution. Um, and he says, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So I think... And from the context here, I think that this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, is the one that took Paul to court and then caused this, uh, this hearing, his imprisonment, and then his um, execution at some point after that. So it's the vested interests. It's the silversmith and the coppersmith who were the ones that... Um, I mean, although clearly he, he had no end of trouble from the Jews' misunderstanding, it's, it, I'm just saying it just wasn't one-sided like that. Okay, that's, that's where I want to close it, because I'll pick up on that next paragraph in the context of the next chapter. So, thank you one and all. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching... Let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.